Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Lurie, and my co-host is Sunny Megatron. Our guest today is Dr. Kim Tallbear. On this episode, Dr. Tallbear will be telling us several captivating life stories. And in our next episode, she'll be back to answer more questions in depth about the life journey she is sharing today. Here's a bit more about Dr. Tallbear. Kim Tallbear is a professor of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, and she is Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Environment. Dr. Tallbear is the author of the book Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging, and the False Promise of Genetic Science, building on her research on the role of science in settler colonialism. Tallbear also studies the roles of the overlapping ideas of sexuality and nature in colonization of indigenous peoples. She is a regular commentator in international media outlets on issues related to indigenous peoples, science, technology, sexualities, and non-monogamy. She is a co-producer of the sexy storytelling and cabaret show, TP Confessions. She is a regular panelist on the weekly podcast, Media Indigena, she is a citizen of the Sisseton, Wapetan, Oyate in South Dakota, and is also descended from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma. She tweets on these topics and more at Kim Tallbear and at Critical Polly. Her research websites include indigenoussts.com and relab.ca. We will include these links in the show notes. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. Please know this podcast has themes of sexual and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. Well, as Kate mentioned, Open Deeply is a podcast about life stories. And in those stories, we crack open our outer shells and we go straight to the center of what makes us tick. And each of our guests are featured in two episodes. Uh, Part of what we talk about is devoted to the guests telling their life stories and zeroing in on the pivotal things that shape them. And then we devote time to analyzing those experiences and parsing out how they fit not only into our guests' big picture, but also how they weave into the common threads that connect all of us. So before we get started, is there anything you'd like us to know first, Kim? Good question. No, I think we should just jump right in. All right. (laughs) All right. So tell us your story. Okay. So I'm a little embarrassed because I'm not used to just going on and on about my story, but I actually do often give my talks uh, through telling different kinds of stories and vignettes. So I do really love storytelling. So let's see what I can do. So I've sort of broken my story into kind of multiple overarching themes. And so I'm going to start with how I came to really require safety and order in my life. I mean, we all require safety, but my safety is kind of predicated on having order, like neat neat surroundings and and quiet solitude. And there's some very particular reasons for that, I think, that have to do, in a sense, with the chaos of colonization and the way that it came to inhabit my family. Um, And The chaos of colonization produces a lot of negative intergenerational trauma, but it also produces some really interesting kind of survival reactions that I don't find all bad. So I'll start when I'm three and a half years old, and I may not move totally chronologically through these stories. I may... uh, hop around a bit. So one of my very first memories, you know, I think many of us, our first memories are from around three or four years old. And mine is, I'm pretty sure, right after my parents divorced. I know because my youngest sister was born at that time, and my mom left my father before she knew she was pregnant with my youngest sister. And I remember living in a basement apartment in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And my mom says that when she left my father, she made the decision one day suddenly because she got an acceptance letter to university in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And she said, I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm taking my 
two kids at the time and I'm going to go be a university student. And so my first memory is from my my sister having been just born, my third sister and my, my second sister was a toddler. And I remember my mom bathing her in the sink um, of the kitchen. And in my three and a half year old memory, it was a huge, big, long apartment. I'm sure it was actually quite small and humble, but I was three. And I was sitting on the floor at the coffee table eating my breakfast cereal. And I remember just watching my toddler sister. Uh, I mean, I was a toddler, but I was a bigger one. Jody would have been about a year and a half sitting in the sink, screaming and crying. And I remember thinking, why is she screaming? She's such a baby. And already at the, <laughs> the age, and she was a baby, right? But at the age of three and a half, I was already trying to be so grown up. You know, I would only wear dresses. I would, I hated jeans, um, even in the middle of winter. And um, I remember then when the new baby came, the screaming and all the crying and screaming. And I, and from a very young age, I remember thinking, why does anybody want babies? All they do is scream and make a mess. And I also remember <laughs> one of my one of my memories I had at that time when I was this little three and a half year old who would only wear patent leather shoes and dresses. And this is about 1970. I guess it would have been 71, 70, or 72 when my sister was born. I um, had this constant daydream. I was such a daydreamer and I can still see the picture in my head. I imagined that I was a queen, not a princess, but a queen in this like, Queen Elizabeth I type dress with a high frilly collar and I had a scepter and I was sitting on a throne in a throne room and there was only the throne in the middle of the room and the late afternoon sun was coming through like stained glass churchy looking windows that would have been the closest thing approximating a castle right in my mind and I was and it was utterly quiet and peaceful and so I would I would daydream all the time about being a queen and I'm pretty sure it was so I would be out of the house of screaming babies and a mother who was stressed out and yelling at us all the time so so very early on this is what I crave solitude and quiet and that is my safe space and I have a total inability to deal with noise and dirt all throughout my life so um, I'll come back to that theme in in, in subsequent stories uh, so I want to move to um, one of the only stories I have of sexual abuse in my childhood and I think it's uh, kind of important to think through it I don't know that I've ever spoke uh, publicly spoken about it um, and that's not, I think that's for two reasons. I don't feel the need to confess or, or call things out publicly. The person who did it to me is, is deceased. I googled him uh, a while back and I know that he's dead. Um, I think it's also got to do with the fact that I, because it only happened once, I think it must be really awful and difficult to recover from repeated sexual abuse. I cannot imagine feeling day after day or night after night like I was in that kind of danger, right? And I think there, for me, I would imagine there's a big difference in that and having it happen once, and then I was whisked away to safety after that. Um, but I, so anyway, but I do want to talk about that. And I think, um, because it's got to do with uh, one of the reasons that I ended up feeling such safety in living in a house with older women, with my great-grandmother in particular, I, I came to understand many years later that I was actually more comfortable with postmenopausal women and that I was making a link between postmenopausal women and little girls because neither of us bled. But I couldn't have told you that that's what I was thinking at eight years old, right? So I had come, right, I'd, so I came to see bleeding as um, a phenomenon that puts a woman in danger. So anyway, when I, yeah, when I, and I, and I got through this, not through therapy, I probably would have gotten to that understanding through talk therapy quicker, but I got through it by writing poetry. I used to publish poetry. So anyway, when I was eight years old, it was Halloween night, 1976. I remember because it was Halloween night and I had a, I was dressed as a princess. Oh my gosh, I just made that connection. <laughs> so and wow. my princess dress in those days you didn't go buy all these fancy costumes you just went to the goodwill or dug around in your mom's closet right and you found your halloween costumes in the 70s that way it wasn't like it is now it's so consuming now anyway we went to the goodwill and i got this like little pink prom dress and it must have been way too big on me because i was only eight years old but i got this like pink silk prom dress it was very 1950s it was sleeveless it was t-length with an a-line skirt and a big bow at the waist and i was so excited to be a princess and a real like princess dress and I remember that night the bobbing for apples the trick-or-treating all that it's I, I will see how much I can say because one of the things that even though I'm a polyamorous and I'm sex positive and I run a sexy storytelling show I have a really hard time saying certain words um, which is really interesting and when I MC the show my co-MC says all the c words I can't say c words <laughs> 
and they they make fun of me about it but i know it's partly growing up in a sexually repressed household right and and the association of uh sex sex words and words to do with your genitalia and parts of your body with something that's dirty and repressed right um, so I, I've worked hard, but I haven't completely overcome the inability of my tongue to say these things. So anyway, that I woke up in bed that night and I was, um, a, a, a friend of the family, um, was not family, not a family member, but somebody that had access to our house. And we had a big extended community, right? This is a days of a lot of American Indian movement activism, very politicized activism. And I'm really grateful to have grown up in that world. But a lot of people had access to our house. And I woke up in bed that night. I was eight years old in a uh, little bedroom with my, my second youngest sister, twin beds. And uh, this man had his fingers on my, like on my labia. And I remember the feel of it because I was eight. I had no pubic hair. I remember how it felt, right? And I, mm -hmm. I didn't scream out because I was worried he would hurt me, you know? And I was, so I, I was trying to figure out how to get the attention of other people in the house that I was being, having violence committed against me. I mean, I knew this was wrong and he shouldn't be doing this, but I didn't want to scream. And also my sister was in the room asleep and I didn't want him to turn to her. And so I right. started breathing really loudly, not knowing at an eight-year-old that that could probably be taken as a sign of arousal. I was trying to make enough noise to be heard without screaming. And the next thing I remember, I don't remember how I got away or jumping out of bed. The next thing I remember was an aunt who lived in the same city who was very close to my mother. I was, she had me sitting on the kitchen counter in the kitchen and she was, um, she asked me what happened and I wouldn't tell her because I wouldn't say the words or maybe I didn't even know the words. Right. And she said, okay, Kimmy, that's what everybody called me. I'm going to ask you questions and you either nod yes or you not, or you shake your head. No. And that's how she got out of me. What happened? Very smart, very smart of her. Right. And, yeah, and then the next absolutely. thing I remember, I was sleeping on her couch in Minneapolis uh, where she and her husband lived. And then after that, I was sent back to the reservation to live with my great grandmother. I don't know what happened. Like, I don't know what happened in the house. I don't know, you know, what happened to my siblings. Um, I don't, I hope I was the only one he did that to. Although I think, I am hope my sisters would have told me if anything happened to them. Anyway, so, so I went to live with my great grandmother for years. And it wasn't, you know, it, it, I think it became, that, but that never happened again. So I didn't necessarily ever feel in danger of that happening again. But I think what I came to associate with safety was the quiet orderliness of my, of my great grandmother's house. There was nobody in there, but her and my great aunt who was uh, disabled and lived with her for her whole life as well. So I lived with two old women and then eventually my other sister came to live. So that's now I realize how very much I am formed by this need for solitude and quiet. And it has a lot to do with moving from the chaos of a politically active, and that's a good thing, but house with a lot of people coming in and out to moving into a, a very old woman's house who had a very strict schedule and sense of order every day. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're mentioning several things that are either healing or grounding for you, like being with women that are postmenopausal, mm -hmm. having the quiet. I'm wondering about the first story and how it feeds into the second story. You know, you talk about your imagination and being a <laughs> yeah. queen. Did your imagination, did, did your imagination help you heal as a little eight-year-old? Oh. You know, like, did your imagination become an assist to help you move through things when you were in the quiet of these older women's, you know, homes? What I should mention is my great-grandmother was a voracious reader. She, after she retired, when she was 65 years old, she laid in bed every day, all day and read, other than when she was cooking meals and watching the 6 o'clock and the 10 o'clock news. And I knew which books to buy. She read Harlequin romances. Remember those? <laughs> And, and, <laughs> yeah, I, so and there were thousands of Harlequin romances and she could send me to the drugstore every single month to get all the new Harlequins and I would remember them by the pictures. I had a photographic memory for some reason for Harlequin romance covers and I would always bring her back 10 or 12 new books she hadn't read and she was like, Kimmy, I don't know how you always know what I haven't read. Um, so I became a voracious reader and yes, I think that's partly what got me through the racial oppression and the boredom of a small town reservation life in the 1970s and 80s. I 
my great grandmother was in a reservation border town where my mom and my grandmother grew up and my great grandparents had lived since the 30s when they came from another reservation. And it's a small town of 2000 people with natives and white farmers, basically, there was nothing to do, right. And the only way to escape that was to read. And so I like my great grandmother, I read and read and read and read. Yeah. And I needed quiet for that. Did reading those books also help you realize there was a bigger world out there? Yeah, and I didn't read Harlequin romances, but I read probably the teenage teenage equivalents of it. And they were always about, I, re, I remember one in particular, I can't remember what it was called, and it was some, you know, vacuous teenage romance. But it was about a young, uh, a teenage girl who moves from boring old Michigan to L.A. <laughs> She totally transforms. She meets this like cool girl in school with big gold earrings and nails. And she completely transforms into this glamorous LA girl from having been in rural Michigan. And she changes her name. I totally related to that story. So yeah, that totally helped me get through boring daily life in rural South Dakota. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I asked you that question because a, a lot of what I do in my psychotherapy practice is more and more realizing how kind of shamanic type work or, or something akin to that, I guess, um, where people get in touch with just their, the, just their imagination. Because usually at some point in childhood, there's someone that tells you to quit being childish, you know, that your imaginary mm-hmm. friend, your imaginary world is childish and it goes away. But when you just barely invite an adult to get in touch with that, this whole world lights up. Yeah. So I was just curious about that. Yeah, no, and reading was it was huge for me. It, in fact, it's it was so big that I will not read fiction now because I can't control myself. Um, <laughs> I will like read all night. I won't get my work done. I won't go to sleep. So I've like totally on the you know fiction like wagon. <laughs> wow! And did did all of those stories of you know like the moving to LA and the reinventing yourself? Did they inform the rest of your life? Did you? go on to actually do so. Oh, yeah. No, I was very focused from childhood on getting out, getting out of that small town and getting out of South Dakota. Um, And in fact, I come to realize when I move overseas later in my late 20s, how actually, despite the fact that all I ever dreamed of was leaving that small town, how deeply co-constituted I am, like mutually shaped by a rural prairie landscape. And I after all my traveling around the world and living in Boston and living in Austin, Texas and living in, you know, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, I really, really needed to be on the prairies. And that became increasingly clear to me in my uh, late 30s and early 40s. And I live in Edmonton now, a relatively unsophisticated um, million person city in the middle of Alberta, right? When I could have lived in Boston, I could have lived in LA, I've had job offers there, I could have lived in San Francisco, but I need to be on the prairie. And I want to be where there's a lot of natives around and like it or not, I grew up in a very conservative prairie community. And ultimately, after having traveled the world, this is where I'm most comfortable. Yeah, you know, and a little bit adjacent to that, you know, you were talking about the comfort of postmenopausal women. Just the other day, I was talking to a friend and she said, the only I think she said the only mammals that have a menopause are humans and a certain type of whale. And the main theory as to why that's kind of evolved with humans is that gra- is, is this grandma theory that grandmas actually do a better job of being nurturing than a lot of other types of people. Like just the importance of the grandma. No, and I think historically in my culture, in Dakota culture, it's that way. You know, um, grandparents were raising the children and because parents were out doing things to help the community survive, right? And in my family, it was also that way. I mean, my mom also left the reservation. She moved to the city. She became a grant writer. She was a very successful professional working for urban native organizations, for tribal organizations. And that was a lot of long, hard work. And who was there, you know, to help raise the children? And, you know, it was my grandparents because they were my grandmothers in particular, my mom's mom and my mom's grandma. Um, Yeah, because they were retired and they had time and you mellow with age, I think, and your grandchildren become really special to you. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So I'd I'd love to hear more more stories. I know you have several. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think um, sort of moving into the next the kind of the years of like from eight to 13 when I'm living with my great grandmother, I really it's really interesting to think back on those memories, right? How kind of safe it was. I slept with her most nights. Um, she would rub my he- my head until I went to sleep. There were just, there were no, me- the only men that ever came in the house were my uncle, you know, a relative, right? It was very much a woman's household and a woman's household in which men were just not 
part of the story. So in my mother's household, because she was, you know, young and in her 30s, there were men that she had relationships with. There were, you know, male activists. And and in, if you know American Indian movement activism in that era, there's a lot of photo op like men, right, with long braids and chokers and feathers. And, you know, the truth of the American Indian movement was there was a lot of not so prominent men and women and children who were doing activist work, institution building work, all of that was going on behind the scenes. But what the public saw was these like photo op native guys in their braids and chokers, right? And that was, could be kind of problematic. I knew a lot of those men and I don't, they were all abusers in some way. Now, I don't, I don't discount the good that they did for our people, the political kind of agency they exercised, the assertive kind of way in which they pushed back against the settler state. But when you have a couple of generations of people forced to go to boarding school or residential school, as we call it in Canada, people who were emotionally, physically and sexually abused by priests and nuns and Indian agents, you end up with people who become abusers, right? Not everybody, but a lot of people. And so that was also characteristic of all of that activism and that activist moment that I grew up in in the 70s. I take so much positive from that in terms of my own politicization, but it also meant that women and children were disproportionately victims of abuse, I think, given that history that those activists were pushing back against. And of course, then I would go back to the reservation, which was in some ways, a less politicized place uh, and, and into a postmenopausal great grandmother's house where there were no men around, right? It was just a very quiet, staid place. And so then I'll get sort of to the there's another kind of really informative story, I think, that in part informs my ability to do non-monogamy. So when I was about 13, I started to become, I was always politically conscious because my mom raised us that way, but I became more personally or individually agential around the age of 13. I was kind of a timid child, actually. I was very shy. Uh, I, you know, I was really a bookworm and I was into school and I was often a teacher's pet, but I had a really hard time talking to other students, um, perhaps more so than adults. So in any way, I was, there was a, a couple of years between say sixth and eighth grade that I was relentlessly harassed on the playground by this group of popular white girls who were a grade ahead of me. And, you know, I put up with it silently. I kind of got into my books in school and I just was... I just thought someday I'll get out of here. I'm just going to be quiet and keep my head down and someday I'll get out of here. Well, one day they did something that really just busted all that open. Um, I was standing alone on a part of the playground. I don't know what I was doing. And these girls were over in a huddle by the school. And, and uh, they sent over this other little girl named Tina. And I never knew if Tina was white because she looked white or if she was native because she hung out with, only hung out with natives. <laughs> And she's like one of those people where you're like, is she just a white Indian or is she like a white person that just hangs out with natives all the time? Because we do have people like that that kind of just become part of our family and our kinship structure, right? Anyway, they sent Tina over to uh, give me some mean message about how much they hated me or something. And in that moment, my whole world changed. I could put my own head down when they were insulting me. But when they used this other little girl who I knew to be, if she wasn't Native, was a real ally of Native people. And when they attempted to use her like that, that that was it. That was the final straw for me. So I was able to speak out because I was so horrified by their uh, manipulation of her um, as a less powerful person, right? And then I went up to this group of girls and I let them have it. I started swearing like my mother. I told them <laughs> how, you know everything I thought of them, that I thought they were pathetic and, and, you know, they were never going anywhere. I don't know. I never swore either. Suddenly it just all came out of me. And I thought any minute now they're going to pile on me. Any minute they're going to, you know, beat me up and punch me. And I turned around and walked into the school and I kept walking and nobody was on my back pulling me to the ground. And I kept walking. And finally I got into the school and I turned around and I was like, where are they? They were standing there out on the playground with their mouths hanging open. And in that moment I went, well, <laughs> well, geez, why didn't I do this three years ago? I've been putting up with their <laughs> crap for three years, right? Like I was so pissed at myself for being intimidated by them. You know, I was so pissed. And that set the whole stage for the rest of my life. I thought, okay, I have more agency and strength and resources than I knew. I should not be letting these mean white people brainwash me. And I am no longer going to feel bad about who I am. And I'm no longer going to be afraid. Uh, and so I, even though I wasn't fully convinced of that, over the next several years, I brainwashed myself to think not only am I, 
not only am I as good as you, I'm better than you, or at least I'm more courageous than you. And so from then on, it was it was a different world for me. And so I really do, I often thank those those four mean white girls on the playground. Almost every day I thank them because there is no social media trolling that can get to me in the way that they, like they really prepared me for um, a world of public intellectualism in which I get a lot of great feedback, but I also get kind of a lot of social media trolling. That's that's an amazing story. Oh, <laughs> That's, that's a really cool story. Just like it, it's always cool to just know that moment where your mm-hmm. whole life turns in a different way. Yeah. Oh, that is amazing. And But you didn't know it at the time. You know, it, you said it took you a few years to really piece together. Like, when did you really realize that? Was oh, the how, how many I think years I, did well, that take? that's a really good question. I think probably in my 20s when I was looking back over my teenage years and thinking, you know, how did I go from being such a timid, shy, scared kid, uh, but with a great imagination, to being somebody who was more fierce? And, you know, and I really had to push myself not to care what others thought. I deeply cared what others thought. Um, But I think I realized in my early 20s, I kind of brainwashed myself, but in a good way, (laughs) into believing something I didn't believe when I set out to try to believe it, right? And it also seems like being fearless is kind of, or as close as you can get to being fearless is kind of the secret to so many things. Like everybody, if everybody leaned as much as they could into being fearless, I feel like this might be a better planet. You know? Well, this was an example, too, of using anger in a productive way. And so I often, I had this sight late, insight later in my 30s. I think in my teens and my early 20s, it was not bad to be angry. Angry got me out in the world. Uh, it, it made me oppositional politically and intellectually. At the age I am now, anger... Uh, it, it would become debilitating. And I ha- kind of had to really work to let the anger go that had been productive in my earlier years. Uh, let it go in my 30s, 40s and 50s, because it is no longer productive. Uh, it would actually really um, have a negative effect on my physical health. Because as you get older, you know, stuff gets a little bit broken down, and you have to do a lot more self care and maintenance, just I mean, physically, right? Um, you know, so yeah, I think I, I don't think it's always bad to be angry, but sometimes it's not good, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an important to, thing to say. So many people are so scared of their anger that they never look it in the face and figure out how to manage it. Right, right. And how to use it to make headway in, 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 in some way. So yeah, like, so I work with a lot of people and you know, when I uh, younger people, because I'm a professor and you know, I'm like, your anger is really great at this age. It's making you open up and get politicized and realize the injustice of the world. At some point, you might have to tap into another kind of emotion to keep making headway in your sort of personal life and your social justice work. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's an interesting topic to think about when is anger not serving you and when it's, when is it serving you? And, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, when somebody gets traumatized at first, there's nothing good about it. But sometimes there's a silver lining where on the other side of it, we can funnel our, our anger towards some kind of social justice effort or, or for sticking up for ourselves. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it seems like you've done both. Yeah. And would you say that your, I don't know, ability to use your anger productively when you were younger and in your twenties had something to do with, you know, your age or your station in life that you were more, I guess, tolerant of the stress that that anger brought you or more optimistic about what that anger could get you and maybe how that anger affected you or your viewpoint of that anger. Did it change as you aged? Yeah, and I think I can't also discount my class mobility, right? Not everybody has that. And so because I went to university, and at that time in the 90s, going to university was not as uh, saddled with debt as it is now for many of us, uh, I was able to get a lucrative employment when I finished my master's degree. The, the world has changed for young people. So I, you know, I tell my stories, but I don't pretend that I can give good advice to somebody who's 21 or 25 now. It's a different world. But yeah, I think what ha- part of what helped me uh, realize when my anger was no longer productive was the fact that I was able to go to university. And it matters to get social capital. I mean, I think about what it, f- I remember what it felt like to be in my early 20s and to be poor when I first moved to Boston and I was going to undergrad at night and I was working full time during the day. I mean, I, there were months, 50% of my take home income went to pay my rent. There were most months at the last two or three days of the month, I couldn't afford to eat. But I was in school. 
I had an apartment, a safe and quiet place, right? I had the things that I needed for my baseline of safety. And then I graduated and there is social capital, or at least there was then in a, in a university degree. And I was able to get a job and not be so poor anymore. So I think those things also helped. I mean, people that live in chronic poverty for all of their life, who can blame them, right? I don't think I would have right. overcome my anger if I hadn't had some relief from poverty. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So, um, Let's see. Do you have another story for us? I'd love to hear what's next. Yeah, no, I can. So I can talk a little bit about uh, when anger maybe stops serving me as kind of subcontext of this next story. So when I moved to Boston, when I was uh, almost 21, and I uh, went to undergrad out there, and I worked, and then I eventually did my master's there, I... Oh, well, let me let me actually go back for a second. I want to talk about the first time I had sex real quick, <laughs> because okay. that was kind of a pivotal moment. And it's maybe just a little story. So I was 19 years old, and I was terrified of sex, just terrified, right, because of the things I talked about in my childhood. But also, I, I, I didn't want to get pregnant. I just thought that sounded like the worst thing in the world. And I was raised in an environment in which the idea was, well, you know where babies come from. So if you get pregnant, you're going to have to deal with it. And abortion was not really talked about as an option. And so I was always very careful not to have sex. And then once I started having sex, I was extremely careful with birth control because I was so terrified I was going to get pregnant. So anyway, this meant that I decided not to have sex until I was 19. And I finally only did it because I was so terrified of it. I was sick of being scared. I was like, just do it and get it over with. Because I also thought it was going to hurt. <laughs> so... <laughs> I had a friend that I went to undergrad with and, you know, we were not in a relationship, but we, he was cute and we got on. And so we went out dancing one night and we went back to his place and I'm like, all right, let's have sex. He's like, what? He's like, I can't believe, I can't believe it. Are you kidding me? I'm like, sure. Why not? I want to get it over with. He just thought he had struck gold. <laughs> So, anyway, no, it was, and it was fine. And it was like with that moment with those girls in junior high, I was like, is that all? Well, that's not a big deal. You know, it didn't hurt that bad. It felt okay. He's, this is fine. What was I so worried about? So it's another incident of me being like a big chicken of something and then learning it wasn't such a big deal. So that was lucky for me. It was not a bad first experience. <laughs> so, and times have really changed. Now you're someone who talks about non-monogamy on the regular. Yeah, no, exactly. I think about, you know, I, I, yeah, how different how different I am now and how different I've raised my daughter, you know, it would just never occur to her to be ashamed of sex or talking about sex or talking about her body to me like cause she's 18 and she's almost 19. And I'm so I love how she's so willing. She, I know she doesn't tell me everything, right? You don't tell your mom everything. But she tells me so much more than I ever would have told my mother or my grandmothers. And I feel really happy about that, like having broken some cycles from the last generation to the next one. So mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And that story was going to lead into the one that you were about to tell us, but then you stopped and you went back. Oh, yeah. So I'll go back to Boston now. So in my early day, I was there from 21 to 27. When I first got there and I was working all the time and going to school all the time, I at one point I found myself dating three different people at once. And I remember thinking, feeling guilty because I didn't feel guilty about it. I Interesting. Just, yeah, I was just like, this is fine. Uh, God, I should I must be an amoral person. What's wrong with me? You know, isn't that hilarious? So anyway, but it was going great. And I, I, I didn't have any jealousy. I really was not a very jealous person. And that goes back to that story about those girls harassing me in junior high. I learned also in that moment when I pushed back against their harassment that that even if you feel bad about yourself or ashamed or feel like you're less than, you should just convince yourself that you're not because that's no way to live. And so I learned I really taught myself do not dare ever envy anybody else or covet what they have that is an undignified position i'm not i mean i this is what i had to do to brainwash myself right i'm not giving advice to others or judging them but for me to get through that moment i had to tell myself that it was undignified to envy and covet that it was in fact undignified to not accept who you are and where you come from and work with that that in fact if i was not accepting of myself that means that i was somehow judging negatively my history my family my tribe and that i had been given all of these things that i just had to work with that was just the fact of the matter so that kind of later made me realize why i don't tend to have it's not that i don't get an embryo of jealousy i do think to some degree maybe jealousy is a natural thing i don't know the state of the conversation on that but i kill it like 
like I kill the embryo of jealousy immediately. And I'm and it may not be as good a solution as talking through something to find out, you know, to have a more enlightened way of dealing with it. But it works for me. It's like a software patch or a piece of tape, right? It works. And so I'm not going to question it or say, was there a better way for me to get through it? I don't struggle with jealousy very much. I'm very practiced in not doing that. So when I was dating these three different people in my in my early 20s in Boston and not feeling bad about it, that's really interesting to look back on that. Clearly, if I had had the the definition and then the word and the terminology of polyamory, I probably would have started exploring it then, but I didn't even know that was a thing. I just thought I was probably amoral. And isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And so did you think that you were amoral because, you know, were these three people, you know, assuming this was some kind of exclusive relationship or was it just like, oh, we're all doing our thing and nobody really cares and nobody really, was it you imposing that from society onto yourself that you just shouldn't be doing this? Yeah, no, definitely. No, we, we all were open with each other. So I, yeah, all, th- all three of them knew that I was seeing other people and I knew they were seeing other people or could. And we just kind of didn't talk about it very much. One of them I talked about it a bit with. He was from he was from a place in Europe, and he he very much I think came from a culture of open relationships were a thing. Um, but I had never been exposed to that. And the other two people I were dating were much less cosmopolitan. He was an academic, and was in the U.S. from Europe for a couple of years. And the other two people were very working class, Boston. Italian American and Irish American guys who came from Catholic families who came from a similar background to me more working class or poor and religious, you know, or or sexually repressed. But we all were no, we were all open with each other, though, that this was not exclusive, right? So it was really more me saying feeling like this, this must be immoral. And I don't know why I don't feel bad about this, because it's not a real relationship. I'm not being monogamous, you know, and, and I thought that just meant that, oh, I don't want to get married. I don't want any of that stuff. You know, I just want a career. And in fact, I mean, I think that was part of it that I wasn't into the kind of normative structure of marriage and, and monogamous relationships. Yeah, I think that was part of it. But that wasn't all of it. I do think I am cut out for open non monogamy. Yeah, and you've spoken on how you very much come from a stance that no one, that you are not someone's property and no one else is your property. I know that's uh, right. I'm just wondering if you just from that moment just progressively became more and more embodied in your non monogamy, or if you had little moments where you were monogamous, or, you know, I'm just kind of wondering the trajectory around that. No, that's why I wish I say that I wish I had the the uh, terminology of polyamory and open non monogamy, because I fell in love when I was 23. So I was dating those three people. And then I met somebody that I it was like love at first sight. And we were together nonstop from the second day that we knew each other, and almost living together. And of course, I called the other people up and said, I'm, I'm done. I met somebody that's what you, and so that's what you say, right? Oh, I met somebody now I'm done with this other stuff. Those weren't real relationships. So even though I was really anti-marriage and I didn't want children, I still was railroaded into the script of monogamy. You know, it's just, and it took me years then to come back to reckoning with it and finding a language for it. So yeah, I fell in love. And then there's another kind of, uh, the, the cheating story comes in there. And, you know, I look back on this three-year relationship um, and, you know, he was one of the loves of my life, along with my great-grandmother, along with my child, along with my co-parent. I think of multiple loves of my life and they're not all romantic, right? But yeah, I totally went went to monogamy and went all down that rabbit hole of, you know, ownership. And um, although I will say when the cheating happened in our relationship and, and it was him that did it, cheating, quote unquote, I never worried about who she was. I'd never occurred. I just I didn't really want to know because I didn't want to focus on her. I wanted to focus on what was going on with us. And I never really I never did feel jealous or feel like comparing myself to her. It took me years. We talked years later, he and I, for me to find out who she was and anything about her. I didn't know for many years. But I wanted to say something about cheating because the way well, I found out and I didn't find out I really didn't accept that that's what was going on until a couple of years after we had broken up. And then he and I talked about it and he admitted because he would never admit it during our relationship. But I ended up with an STI two and a half years into what I thought was a monogamous relationship. 
And it, it was incredibly traumatic because my old sexual repression came up, my blaming myself. He also was a Catholic, you know, growing up, he had rejected it, but he had a lot of issues around, you know, he actually asked me if I'd been promiscuous when he knew he was the one who had given it to me. Like, Oh, wow. That is not <laughs> it's nice. So, well, it's so, but I didn't, you know, it's so traumatic. But I do think back into this relationship, though, and I did a lot of really shitty things too. You know, there are multiple ways to be unfaithful to the one you love, right? That is certainly one way, lying and cheating, quote unquote. But I I was pretty rough and some emotionally rough in some of our like I didn't know how to say I was sorry. I would give him the silent treatment for days on end. I wouldn't talk through things. I mean there are multiple ways to abandon your lover, right? That Paul, that Paul Simon song, there's multiple ways to leave your lover or many ways to leave your lover. It's, it's like that. And so I, I take 50% of the credit in the demise of our relationship. Also recognizing that we both were coming out of colonial histories. He was from Ireland, right? And so, and had a family that was deeply involved in, in anti-British resistance. And so this is partly what drew us together was even though we come from very different parts of the world and very different cultures, this kind of history, we had a, a similar sense of uh, understanding of colonialism and coming from families who were actively involved in uh, oppositional politics to colonialism. And so that drew us together. But I think we also had similar kinds of historical trauma related to that, that made us both act out in these ways in which we were just incapable at that point in our lives of, of having, I guess, what I would today call a, a, a healthier type of relationship. So, but yeah, through that, I, I kind of came back into monogamy. And then after that relationship ended, met my, the person I married and then was in a monogamous marriage for a relationship with him for about 13 years. Oh, wow. And, and so today, why do you feel, I mean, I can guess, but I'd love to hear it from you. Why do you feel that talking about sexuality and, and non-monogamy kind of through an indigenous, through a North American indigenous lens, why do you feel like that's so important? Why are you drawn to talk about that? Well, I think for a couple of reasons, you know, having grown up in a native community and worked for tribal organizations, for tribal governments in native studies, for federal agencies within their tribal programs, that's my whole life's work, right? Sort of supporting uh, indigenous intellectualism and governance and uh, rights. And so that's always my lens. I, are, am I living in a way and producing knowledge in a way that is upholding the rights of, of tribes and indigenous collectives? That's my ultimate goal in everything. Thing that I do. And so when I started thinking about living outside of a normative marriage, I that was also part of pushing back against settler colonialism and its mores and its history and the cultural imposition. So not only did they forcibly try to convert my ancestors to Christianity, they forcibly made us into U.S. citizens and Canadian citizens. They made uh, our ancestors speak English. They were beaten for practicing their spiritual, you know, practices. You know, we. this is why we have the American Indian Religious Freedom Act, right? We've had to pass laws giving Native people the rights to worship in the way that they want. Um, we've had our children stolen. Uh, and we've also had marriage and monogamy imposed on us. All of these are part of a package that of what settler states and churches and science have imposed onto Indigenous people to make us assimilate. And so when I, knowing that history, when I started thinking about how I wanted to do relationships differently, it was not only what I what I personally felt comfortable with and wanted. Of course, my relationship journey is an individual journey, but it was also always about how can I do relationships in a way that might be tapping into or trying to recover some of the relationship wisdom of my ancestors. Now, that's hard to do in the 21st century, right? Colonization happened. Our institutions have been decimated. We don't even have languages to talk about the, the, the ways that our ancestors had sex and relations and marriage, right? There's a lot that we don't know, but I think we can tap into worldviews or, 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 or core values that I think have survived in our communities and figure out how we translate those worldviews and core values into 21st century practices, if that makes sense. And so that's what I'm trying to do in theorizing non-monogamy. Polyamory, people say, you know, they hear me talk and they'll say, oh, so polyamory is a traditional Native American practice. No, it is not. <laughs> but but non-monogamy was pretty characteristic of a lot of indigenous cultures. So how do we think about the way they did? And they probably wouldn't have even had a word that literally would have translated into non-monogamy. Because if you didn't have compulsory monogamy, why would you need to name something non-monogamy, right? 
Uh, we all, we also had, uh, and I don't know an indigenous culture I've worked with that didn't have multiple genders historically in their tribes. So we had options for people, and I'm, and of course I have to use English. These are not the words and and categories and concepts our ancestors would have used, but our ancestors had options for people whose gender expression, as we would call it today, not matching what we would call biological sex. So there's so much wisdom in the in the in the really good relating of our ancestors that we have totally lost. We haven't only lost spiritual practices. We haven't only lost, you know, our religions. We've also lost our ways of relating uh, and making kin and having sex. Yeah, I, I can't wait for the book that you're you're going to put out on that's more related to all of this. I'm I'm really excited. Me too. I just have to finish it. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think it's you, your voice is so important. And, and you know, I kind of touched on this when we were talking the other day. I feel like a lot of, you know, the, the set, settler philosophy, the narcissism, the sexism, you know, it, it leaks into non-monogamy too. And so, you know, to have a voice that is very much showing a different way, I think could really help a lot of folks that are in in non-monogamous relationships that are very far from ideal, you know? Absolutely. So you were in, you know, you went from this monogamous relationship into a 13-year monogamous marriage. So what was that transition like? And then how did that lead you to the next piece of your life? Yeah, so I was with that person from Ireland for three years in what I thought was a monogamous relationship. <laughs> and then, and then you know, we broke up and I um, met and married my husband, and uh, who I have a daughter with. And yeah, that was interesting. I mean, it was, in many ways, we had a great relationship. And I, you know, we talked about why did we get married? I, partly it's because we moved overseas and for him to bring me with him on his postdoc, uh, we had to get married. But also, I just thought that's what you did, right? And he grew up with a parents who had a relatively happy marriage and a stable nuclear family. He had like a little beaver to cleaver growing up, kind of, you know. And uh, he was very stable and loving and a... It, it, he's a feminist, enlightened, you know, and I thought, gosh, you can't do better than this for a partner, you know, and I thought, and and the, I thought the relationship escalator, despite all my earlier kind of opposition was kind of the good, healthy uh, way to do things. And I should say, I definitely feel like people who grew up poor or who grew up marginalized, whether it's racial or class marginalization, I think we get especially tempted to get on the relationship escalator because it's a way, especially for like indigenous people, black people, we have historically been hypersexualized. Our family forms have been made, uh, have been portrayed as deviant. And so one of the ways for us to be good citizens, like for gay people, is to get married. Marriage is a gateway to respectable citizenship. Monogamy is a gateway to respectable citizenship. And in fact, if you look at the work of Angela Willey, who talks in her book um, on doing monogamy about sexologists at the at the turn of the 20th century, they very mindfully imposed marriage, monogamy, and nuclear family as a sign of civilizational advancement. So for those of us who come from cultures and races and peoples who have been seen as unevolved and deviant, it's very appealing for us to kind of buy into this middle-class, upwardly mobile way of doing marriage and family. And I'm sure that's what was going on with me. I thought, okay, now I can get over the, in part, it can help you heal from the trauma of my past. I'm not going to choose these these non-stable relationships. I'm going to like, you know, grow up, get settled. There's also that grow up thing, right? You're, you're not grown up. You're immature if you don't get married. That's a whole other thing that's kind of intersecting here. So all that was going on in my mind. And it intersects with the fact that David, my co-parent, who we, I talk very openly about him and I've, you know, we've, he He's given me permission to, he says he trusts me. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons, both good reasons and, and kind of reactionary reasons that that brought me together with him. And we continue, even though our, our marriage has evolved into not the kind of romantic coupledom it used to be, um, we have retained almost everything else that's great about our relationship. So... But yeah, so I can talk, I mean, I can talk more about that, I think. But yeah, that was a really interesting journey for 13 years. So th there were many good things about that, right? We write together, we co-parent well together, we have, we, we talk politics together, we're very much on the same page politically. But this, so it wasn't, I came to realize after, after leaving that marriage, we're still legally married, but we've been separated for and not living in the same house for about 10 years now. I came to realize that he was never really the problem. 
I mean, I was partly, well, the problem was this, this structure of what I call settler marriage. And what really made me feel like I couldn't breathe, even more than the monogamy, because I can do monogamy, even more than that, what was suffocating was we have to appear in public as a couple. The couple has to do everything together. You have to have a child, prefer, preferably 2.1 children. You have to get a dog. You have to buy a house. You have to be respectable. I felt like I couldn't breathe. All I wanted to do was, I loved hanging out with my with my co-parent and my daughter, but I didn't want to go to parties with a bunch of little kids. I didn't want to go on playdates to the park with a bunch of middle-class white people and their dogs. Like all this stuff was horrible to me. This was not the kind of life, this was not the kind of family I grew up with. I grew up in a matriarchal household where my great-grandmother was the center of the world and there weren't a lot of men around. And even if they were, the couple didn't matter. The couple could break up and the family was still intact. So to me, coupledom was oppressive and dangerous and unsustainable. And again, I couldn't have told you all this stuff in my 30s and 40s when I was so unhappy and wrestling with this. It's only been in my journey through non-monogamy in the last 10 years where I've really figured out what exactly was bothering me about settler marriage. And it wasn't my husband as much as it was the structure. Yeah. So you really started, it sounds like you really started to break down all of that and lean into the Kim that I know these days that talks about being in relation with humans and non-humans, that you're always in relation. Yeah. Yeah. And then the nature work kind of comes into that too. So one of the things that my co-parent and my daughter who was raised probably 60, when when we decided to, I didn't want to have children because I'm also afraid of pregnancy. I was afraid of childbirth. I don't like pain. I didn't want like my body getting stretched out, who knows what's going to happen, you might need stitches, stuff might rip, you know, I just was like, ah, this sounds horrible. I don't know anybody wants to do this. If I could have incubated her in a lab, that would have been great, because I like science. And I and she was cute. And I knew I'd love her when she came out because I loved my nieces and nephews, but I had zero desire to birth a child or be pregnant. But when when he was like being all baby hungry and begging for a child, I was like, all right, here's the terms. I am never doing more than 40% childcare. You're doing 60% minimum. You will change all the poopy diapers unless you're not around. My work comes first and I do not promise that I will have a second one. And if I, if my body is a mess when it's over, I get any plastic surgery I want. I never did that. But, <laughs> and I also said, and I get all the, and I get all the technology. I'm not going through pain. I'm using painkiller. He's like, fine, fine, whatever. I just want a baby. <laughs> so... <laughs> That I, is awesome. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, if he'd had the uterus, he totally would have had her. Like, totally. So. That so, is an amazing story. I'm just yeah. wondering how all the women that are listening, or just, I'm just wondering how all the listeners are reacting to that. Because it's just like, that's just awesome. I think no, that's I'll, awesome. I'll tell you how I'm reacting. I'm like, man, I did it wrong. Nice. <laughs> like, I could have had, what? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, he was so baby. And the thing is, too, but I knew he would live up to what he promised, because when I met him, when he was finishing his PhD the last year, he was a nanny. He was living with a doctor who adopted a baby from overseas, and she was a single mom, and she was on call, and she needed a student to live with her and take care of the baby when she was on call. And so when he and I were first dating, and I would sometimes spend the night, he would get up in the middle of the night to take care of that baby. And I'm like, David, Irene is home. You don't need to take care of this baby. You're not the dad. He's like, oh, she needs her sleep. And I'm like, well, if he's going to do that with some other woman's baby, he's definitely going to do it with ours. So I knew he would follow through on everything he promised. That's amazing. <laughs> he is, that yeah. is amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that I drove a hard awesome. deal. Yeah. My co-parent has uh, been the primary caretaker. Um, and I have, uh, he's a professional, but I ended up focusing on my career and earning more money. So sometimes I pay for more stuff, but he pays in that he has, he has done the hands-on parenting for much more of Carmen's childhood. And so that's kind of uh, where we are now. And that kind of influences who my daughter has become. And so this is another interesting conversation to have. I mean, she's, she'll get all girly with me because I'm kind of a femme, right? I'd say I'm like not high femme, but pretty close. And, but when but she's mostly you know she's been raised more than 50% of the time by her dad and her grandfather they also lived with her grandfather so she's she's kind of a tomboy like she's been raised by old men right a 60 year old and 85 year old man and so they're out hiking right now they're and I hate to hike so this is to going back to the oppressiveness of the middle class kind of nuclear family and the way that nature and concepts of nature intersect with that I also learned by kind of moving away from my marriage and grappling with the oppression of settler marriage that I also really didn't like the imposition 
of settler definitions of nature. Um, and so nature is sex, sexuality and sex is a subset of nature, right? It's an object that's a subset of environment and nature. And the way that settlers do nature, including my, my co-parent is really interesting. Like we get out into nature, we hike. There's these pictures of people on a mountaintop with their arms raised overlooking this, this regal scene. And I realized by living in Northern California and being married to a person who liked to hike all the time and working in an environmental studies department at Berkeley when I was there, I hate white people's concepts of nature. It's so different from indigenous concepts of nature. And then nature got tied up with this kind of nuclear family. And if you look at the history of camping, there's like whole feminist histories of camping. Camping is also a part of uh, the rise of the nuclear family in the mid 20th century and what constitutes a respectable middle class family. For good health, you have to get out into nature. And so there were all these kinds of dominant settler stories and narratives that were really oppressing me and my marriage, right? And I didn't even know this was going on. So I hated to hike. And I and it was another instance in where I felt like I must be a bad person. I must be a killjoy. I don't like dogs. I don't want a dog. I don't want to go to play parties with these other parents. I don't want to sit with the moms and talk about our kids in school and everything they're doing. I just want to stay home, clean my house, have a glass of wine and do some work. I must be a jerk, you know? <laughs> so now I've come to realize, like, let Carmen and her dad go do their hiking out in nature thing with all the middle class white people. Like, if they're happy, I'm happy. But I, anyway, I've kind of come to the point where I've kind of realized all of the kind of intersecting uh, settler narratives that were kind of creating the world in which I was being forced to inhabit through marriage and through respectable citizenship that I am now really pushing back on. And, and then my journey through non-monogamy is, is part of that pushing back. Can, can you clarify a little bit? more of the difference between a settler idea of nature of nature versus an indigenous yeah. idea of nature well, we talk a lot. I mean, and there's plenty of non-Indigenous people who have written about this. I mean, I think looking at the eco-feminists, there's a lot of feminists and, and queer folks who have written about nature and, and with similar kinds of critical lenses as Indigenous peoples do. So the idea that nature and humans are separate, right? That you get out into nature, that you kind of retreat into nature, it's actually really anti-relational. Even though people think they're going out into nature and communing with nature, the whole idea of separating humans and nature is also um, an artifact of a history of making humans sit over nature. Humans are more evolved. Uh, in man at the top of that, if you look at the sort of history of both science and the church, you have this idea of the great chain of being. And it, for religious people, God is at the top, then man, then women. You have different races at different points in that hierarchy. You have non-human mammals. You get down to plants and bugs. There's this hierarchy of life that inhabits both the religious view of life and also the scientific view kind of de facto. And so Within that, of course, as I said, men are over women. Straight men, straight people are over gay people, right? You've got uh, adults over children, whites over black people and red people as they racialized us. And so that whole kind of um, way of thinking about humans versus nature can be enacted in very kind of conservative, regressive ways, but it can also be enacted in what we consider more progressive politics. So I really think for indigenous people, we often talk a lot about um, our relatives and our relations. And so there's not the same sense of human versus non-human. Again, we're stuck using that word, but in many of our stories, both our origin stories and our kind of traditional funny stories, we have stories about different beings, both human and non-human, being friends, being relatives, marrying each other. Um, so, so I think that's kind of a fundamental difference to think about our non-human relatives as our relatives and not as animals or non-humans. And so one of the things, let me just give you another example. I'm really trying to weed out of my language, the colonial imposition of, uh, denigrating people by calling them animals. Cops are pigs. Okay. I'm, I'm anti-cop. I'm, I'm an abolitionist. I don't call cops pigs because pigs are very decent animals and there are relatives. Uh, I don't think we should call people who are, um, you know, who are maybe pathological murderers animals. Do animals do that? You know, I mean, we really need to stop stigmatizing our animal relatives and right and, and sort of using them to describe uh, monstrous human activities. I mean, even the word monster, you can get into that because it's really a non-human, right? What is a monster? So that's part of my own little personal project of language decolonization is to remember that animals are our relatives and they do not deserve to be saddled with our um, 
our sort of uh, our reckonings with our kind of bad human relatives, right? So right, yeah, I adore all of that. One hundred and ten percent agree. Yeah. So when I talk about the sort of ways in which I'm trying to not divide humans from non-humans, and I'm trying to repair that divide between nature and humanity, um, that's part of what's prompting me to move through polyamory uh, to try to develop another language for talking about these things as I see them. And so polyamory and non-monogamy have been, it's been a really productive path for me. And I am grateful for uh, having available to me in the last 10 years, the language of polyamory and non-monogamy. I'm really grateful for all of the people I've met in polyamorous communities and kink communities who have really helped me um, reckon with what I view as still a form of settler colonial sexual but it's a more oppositional form. I think a lot of people that are doing polyamory, particularly people that are doing solo polyamory, people that are doing what I call critical polyamory, people that are maybe overlapping into relationship anarchy, people that are doing this in a politicized way are really thinking about how oppressive the state is. And the state is not only oppressive in terms of forcing compulsory marriage and monogamy onto us, but the state will also then seek to regulate polyamory in a way that serves them. So I'm always interested in the most political politically oppositional polyamorous, the people who understand that this isn't only a personal journey. It's not only a personal project of self-actualization. It's not only about personal freedom. It's also a deeply political project. We are really, and I think many polyamorous don't know it, especially the more critical ones, but they are pushing back against settler colonialism and they may not call it that. Uh, and those are the people that I really gravitate towards. And when I and so this is why when I get emails from people and I have people coming up to me after talks, both indigenous and non-indigenous, but particularly non-indigenous people who come up to me, they say, thank you. You mean that I can kind of do my relationships in an explicitly political way? They're both personally, I'm, a, I'm personally developing and growing, but I'm also trying to do a political project here. You know, you mean that I can actually do this as part of being an ally in the project of decolonization? And they love to know that. And then they seek more language for it and they're seeking to understand that umbrella of settler colonialism that I and other indigenous scholars are talking about and some queer settler scholars as well who are really dealing with settler colonialism and so I find I'm I'm really hopeful that people find hope in this language and so that's why I'm trying to develop another language that's not only the standard polyamory relationship language which is helpful to a certain degree but it can also be fairly individualistic and apolitical and I think we need the relationship know-how on an individual level but we need uh, structural know-how we need political know-how we need to be thinking in terms of how we can do relating in a way that is also contributing to our social justice work not only our own individual self-actualization and that's what I'm seeking in the language that I'm working with and the, and the next book that I'll be writing. And that then bleeds over into, if we can talk about sustainability, I think um, compulsory monogamy and marriage and, hetero, and compulsory heteronormativity are unsustainable. I think they are cruel and unsustainable ways to inhabit the world. I think de facto monogamy, you know, de facto heterosexuality, I mean, we, we kind of can exist on a spectrum. You know, I'm de facto monogamous right now, but because of COVID, basically, but nobody's forcing me into any kind of box around that, right? At least not that I'm accepting. So I'm thinking a lot about... Um, Gosh, I just lost my train of thought now. I was thinking about nature and polyamory. Oh, sustainability. So I talk in some of my talks about we need more sustainable ways of relating on a romantic and interpersonal level, just like we need more sustainable ways of relating to the environment. And so sustainability for me is both about environmental sustainability, but it's also about our sustainability within our families. What makes a sustainable family? I will tell you, having a couple as the anchor of a family does not make that family sustainable. It does not make it robust. You have a much more robust, sustainable family when the couple isn't anchoring it, when the couple doesn't feel pressure to stay together for the sake of the family. I reject this term, broken family. You don't have to be broken because a romantic relationship transitions out of a marriage or or a romantic relationship. And in fact, that's the kind of family I grew up in. 
you know, the couple could could get together, they could divorce, whatever. There was a set of women and sometimes men there raising the children, sustaining the family, different people made income. Uh, so I, I'm really focused, and, and queer people know this, right? They And I learn a lot from them. They talk about having to make family because so many of them have been ostracized from their families of origin. Who's going to who, who's going to take care of us when we're old, right? So there, so it's not only Indigenous people that are thinking about this, and this is why I always say, this is why I found so much comfort and instruction in queer theory as well, much of it, because they are making similar kinds of critiques of the unsustainability of the settler state, although they may not always use the language of settler colonialism. I do think a lot of queer folks, particularly, you know, really politicized ones are really pushing back against against these oppressive uh, settler structures. Yeah, all of that is Ah, it's so needed. Like everything that you're saying, like all of these thoughts, they're just, even within a lot of non-monogamous circles, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a new way of thinking in a lot of ways. Like, and, and just the way the tapestry you're weaving, you know, where you're, you're, you're looking at non-monogamy, but it, we, it, it goes all the way out to non-humans. And it goes all the way out to like this worldview that's just so much more in harmony and so much kinder. And, and, you know, as a therapist, we talk about creating a safety net. It's like when you have this larger safety net, you know, it's not just about, as you say, that just the, the couple, there's like this whole safety net that can hold you up. If one thread falls away, there's a ton of other threads to hold you up. And it's just such a more connected yeah. And healthy way of looking at things. And it's not that people don't have their traumas and troubles, right? But it, but I think as, you know, as you say, Kate, if you, if somebody's having a traumatic time or just falling away, there, there are other people there to be with, right? Yeah, you don't, you're not reliant on one, one breadwinner, quote unquote, you're not reliant on just one mother or one father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so much more healthy. You know, I, I'll, I'll just share one story. I have a, a friend from Senegal, Senegal. His name is Malik. And he had a, more of a family structure that you describe. And he was talking about, you know, going back to, to Senegal. And I'm like, I bet your whole extended family would be greeting you at the airport. He's like, no, the whole village would greet me at the airport. <laughs> like the whole, the whole village was. And he's like one of the most happy, lit up, confident men I've ever met in my life and kind. And and you can see how this kind of environment where the where you're receiving so much love, so much extensive love can create a human that is just next level. Mm-hmm. And not even a human, I'm just thinking about a society. I'm thinking about all of the people I know that carry so much trauma and carry so much baggage because they were in a home where their parents were fighting and you know or what if as kids we all had these support systems as a society and we grew up that way generation after generation how much different things would be yeah i mean i guess i you know i should it's funny i think our family form was probably stigmatized when i was a kid i know it was because here i thought i had to go get married and have a middle class life right to to heal and be respectable and it took me a long time i think well i i did realize that i was fairly happy as a child but i think it took me a long time to realize how special a lot of my growing up was and that is despite the trauma right it's despite having had par- grandparents and parents in in boarding school who were abused right uh you know it's not that there wasn't violence there it's not that those things didn't happen but we also had this other kind of social safety net within our extended family to that in a sense was resilient enough to, we didn't totally successfully combat the intergenerational trauma of colonization. I would, you know, never, of course, I mean, I told you stories, right, that that talked about that. But it definitely wasn't as, there was, there was a lot of good to draw out of it. And I think that good definitely has to do a lot with what did survive about Dakota family and cultural structures. So that's amazing. Okay. Well, um, I think, gosh, I, I know I'm going to have a ton of questions for you in the next episode. <laughs> oh, likewise, likewise. And I cannot wait until we sit down and talk again. I look forward to that. And listeners, I invite you to join us again, too, on our next episode where we continue this conversation and we continue to open deeply. Thank you for listening. 
Find us online at OpenDeeplyPodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.